This week's episode is brought to you by Sky Balloon, makers of Capture. Capture is a video record button for your iPhone home screen. We've all had those moments of frustration waiting for the iPhone's default camera to initialize, only then to realize we're in the wrong mode and we need to switch and wait again. Capture solves that problem by being a dedicated video recording app. It's just 99 cents and is available on the App Store. Go to skyballoonstudio.com slash capture for a download link and also a cute video promo. Welcome to the Changelog episode 0.6.4. I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Wynn Netherland. This is the Changelog. We cover what's fresh and new and open source. If you found us on iTunes, we're also on the web at thechangelog.com. We're also up on GitHub. Head to github.com slash explore. You'll find some trending repos, some feature repos from the blog, as well as our audio podcasts. And if you're on Twitter, follow Changelog Show. And me, Adam Stack. And I'm Penguin, P-E-N-G-W-Y-N-N. Fun episode this week. Talked to Sam Stevenson over at 37 Signals. He's the guy behind PAL and Prototype.js and a bunch of other fun stuff. He helped sling the code behind the 37 Signals Basecamp mobile application. Talked a bit about uh, Cinco, which is this uh, the framework that they hope to extract out of that application. Everybody's wanting the deets on. And I bet you were excited to hear his thoughts on CoffeeScript. Oh, CoffeeScript and how it plays into the uh, Rails 3.1 asset pipeline, which we had a number of questions on. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> yeah, we can save some folks some, uh, some I guess, knuckle scraping, as it were. There you go. Everybody that's been playing with uh, Rails 3.1 has been uh, having a time of it with the asset pipeline. Uh, it's lightly documented, but uh, very powerful. Absolutely. And next week, we'll be out in Dallas at the Big D con- uh, Conference. Yeah, if you're out at the Big Design Conference here in Big D, uh, I guess it's Friday and Saturday of this week, uh, July 15th and 16th, say hello. I'll be presenting on Accelerated Style Sheets with friend of the show, Nathan Smith, the, uh, I hate to say the 960 guy, but that's uh, his claim to fame, but he's a JavaScripter in his own right. There you go. Yeah, he's a good one, too. He's got uh, a lot of fun projects, Adapt.js, which we used at our daily gig, too. That's true. Dapjs is fun. Uh, he's got a lot of... A formalized JS, I guess, is the other one that's uh, really big, too. What, what doesn't he have? That is true. That is true. Well, this isn't a Nathan Smith episode. Check out a different episode for that. Fun episode this week. Should we get to it? Let's do it. We're chatting today with Sam Stevenson from... 37 signals and purveyor of PAL, prototype, JS, and some other frameworks. So, uh, Sam, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit about what you do at 37 signals? Hey, so um, I do a little bit of everything at 37 signals. Um, well, you're you're like a designer and a and a coder, right? No, 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 just a just a programmer here. Um, let's see, you uh, you did a good introduction. <laughs> I just say what you know what uh, technologies you you work with. All right. Yeah. So I'm a uh, Ruby and JavaScript programmer at Thirty Seven Signals. Uh, I've been here since 2005. Um, I was an early contributor to Rails. Created Prototype uh, in early 2005, and since then I've done 
uh, some other stuff, including Sprockets, uh, PAL, and uh, a couple of smaller projects like Stitch and uh, Exec.js. You've got quite the lineup, and you know we're probably going to end up splitting this into two episodes. So if you're listening to this and and we don't cover one of your uh, favorite libraries that you like of Sam's, then uh, stay tuned to either part one or come back uh, for part two or come back to part one uh, and circle back and, and catch the rest of this. So, Plus you do some awesome show notes too, so I don't think I have a problem with that. They shouldn't have a problem with that. We have the best show notes in the business. That's what we heard. So, Sam, the reason that you came to mind um, most recently was PAL. Adam and I are big fans of PAL. Tell us a little bit about PAL and how it came about. That's awesome. So um, PAL was, uh, like all good open source projects, a product of frustration. Um, At 37signals, we have something like 20 applications, and each one one needs to run at its own domain name. And uh, most of the applications scope accounts by subdomain. So um, it's, it's important to have uh, – in the past, we would have huge host files set up so we could test things out in development. And uh, every time you'd set up a new machine, it was a hassle to get all the apps installed and then to get the host file set up and everything. So I thought surely there's a better way. Um, and at the time, I was playing around with Node.js and CoffeeScript and uh, – just sort of came up with this really quick and dirty thing that spawned, um, it would automatically spawn unicorn. And uh, my coworker, Josh Peake, took a look at it and said, that's shit, and (laughs) (laughs) pulled that out and uh, came up with this really awesome library called Knack, which is a Node.js adapter to Rack. And from there, we continued to build uh, PAL out and added the cool DNS stuff to it. And um, it's it's been a big time saver for us all here at 37. So when I'm describing PAL to, to newcomers, I guess I'm drawing a comparison a lot of times to Passenger. I'm not sure if that's fair. Were you using Passenger? That, yeah, that, that's what most of us were using before. Some of us were using uh, Nginx also. And the problem with Passenger for me was having now in this kind of hybrid mode where we're all of us are running uh, multiple Rubies for the most part. It was just a problem running you know, multiple Ruby installations with your passenger setup, but you know, PAL supports that, right? Definitely, and that was kind of an accident. Um, it's a result of the way NAC works. Um, but it's right around the time that this was coming to fruition, we started experimenting with using different versions of Ruby in our apps. And now, now we do have some apps on 1.9. Previously, we were all um, re but yeah, it's, so it's 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 great that it just works with RVM and Bundler, um, and for the most part, everything just works. What was the inspiration, I guess, for using the dev domain? Were you guys using that prior? We were actually using the uh, test domain, which I think some RFC recommends you use for internal things. Uh, and then when Josh went to work at GitHub, he said that they were using dev internally. And uh, at the time, there was no way to configure it. We, we later added an option to configure it. But um, I, I thought dev was more intention-revealing than test because it's, it's about your development environment, not your test environment. So uh, I'm using a gem called Powder 
to uh, it's kind of like a command line interface for configuring PAL. Yeah, yeah. Have you used it? I, I have used Powder. Um, it's sort of the missing command line utility. It's great. So Node.js under the hood, which uh, you mentioned CoffeeScript, but is it entirely CoffeeScript, or as a JavaScript guy, do you sling any JavaScript in there? I uh, I'm I personally love CoffeeScript and hope to never have to write JavaScript again. Um, so <laughs> as as much of it is CoffeeScript as possible. Uh, the but- creator of Prototype JS hopes to never write JavaScript again. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. When you're when you're writing CoffeeScript, you are indeed writing JavaScript. Um, but the nice part about CoffeeScript is that it's the the good parts of JavaScript, and you're kind of sheltered from everything else. Um, and it's just a much more pleasant environment. It's funny, actually. I'm I'm in process of learning JavaScript, and you don't want to write it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, it's you know, CoffeeScript just makes it so much better. So for someone who doesn't know JavaScript well or say they're a front-end developer and they want to do more snazzy stuff with their HTML and CSS, um, you know, saying you want to write CoffeeScript means no JavaScript. How do you propose someone who's just learning the language in general to jump into this? What, should they jump into CoffeeScript and go shorthand or should they camp out in JavaScript and learn that first? You should learn JavaScript first. Um, when you're writing CoffeeScript, you're still working with JavaScript. The object model is the same. Um, it's, you know, it's still closures and, and functions and prototypes all the way through. But, um, the, the key difference to me is that when I look at a piece of JavaScript code, I see parentheses and braces and semicolons and line noise. And when I look at CoffeeScript, I can see the code that I've written. And, uh, when I, when I'm writing CoffeeScript, I'm still sort of thinking in JavaScript but I just have to type less. One of the digs on CoffeeScript, and, and I must disclose I'm a big CoffeeScript fan, but one of the digs on CoffeeScript is just the debugging overhead of matching source line with output line. Have you run into any problems or you ever got into code where it's just hard to debug? I find it's pretty easy to, to map up the source lines, um, especially since it doesn't mangle your variable names or anything like that. Uh, and for, for the most part, it's a one-to-one mapping. Uh, between source lines in CoffeeScript and source lines in JavaScript. Um, Command F is your friend there. (laughs) But uh, just for the most part, um, it has not been a problem for me. This sounds disjointed. In uh, post, we had a little hiccup with our network connection. We were chatting about debugging CoffeeScript. So what's been your experience, Sam? Uh, So a lot of people mentioned that there's... uh, that they're skeptical about uh, debugging coffee, compiled CoffeeScript code because the line numbers don't match up. Um, and in, in my experience, this hasn't really been a problem because CoffeeScript is good about not mangling your variable names. Um, and for the most part, you get a one-to-one mapping between uh, CoffeeScript source line and JavaScript source line. So even if the numbers don't match up, um, it's very easy to command F and find where you were in the file. You know, when Jeremy came out with CoffeeScript, one of the very first things he did was, I guess, port underscore to coffee just as a one-to-one comparison. Have you played around with porting prototype at all? No, so I don't actually, um, I haven't worked on prototype in a couple of years. Uh, I passed that off to the core team a while ago. Um, But that underscore example is a beautiful example of what you can 
what you can do when you go from JavaScript to CoffeeScript. So before we leave Prototype, there were some questions on Twitter about the future of Prototype. And one uh, user all actually said in this age of jQuery, are we in the age of jQuery? We definitely are, yeah. Um, is, is that your go-to framework these days? We uh, So we'll continue using Prototype for our existing applications at 37signals because we have uh, quite a bit of code written on that and... Um, it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to rewrite it all. But for new applications, we are going to be using jQuery, yeah. What are some of the most interesting things you've done with jQuery so far uh, as a company, maybe even individually? Uh, I think the the real win is that designers can pick it up and easily prototype stuff um, just by putting together a few plugins and uh, writing just a small amount of code. So it's it's great for that. And then when it's time to build it out more fully, um, it... it uh, you know, it, it works about the same as any other JavaScript library. So what's your take on the latest, um, I guess, desktop in the JavaScript community around micro frameworks and whether or not we need these monolithic libraries or kind of the Unix best of breed off the shelf micro frameworks? I, I like the idea. Um, we have had experience with Zepto uh, and underscore and backbone. Um, when we built our Basecamp mobile uh, application and Zepto is wonderful. Um, I think I think the idea of of taking an API and then targeting it to a specific class of browser uh, is is great for times when you're constrained on processing speed and and uh, data transfer. Um, and then things like underscore and backbone are great too because they're just really simple ideas distilled down to uh, single-purpose libraries. You know, last year we uh, went over at uh, Texas JavaScript and we had an interview with John Rezig, who is the creator of jQuery, which you just talked about. And he was kind of prepping everybody with all the different browsers and all the different platforms. And in his talk, he had said the, the mobile web is here, and it was last year. And we were still not quite there yet, but a whole year later, are we at the mobile web? Um. I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I think um, we're living in a WebKit world in mobile, and it's wonderful. Um, and uh, I think there's some interesting things about about uh, doing mobile development right now. You can, for the most part, if you're targeting a smartphone, uh, there's a high chance it's it's running a WebKit browser, and there's a high chance that it has relatively recent hardware, probably more recent than you can assume for people with desktop machines because of the way uh, mobile contracts work. So I, th- I, think it's, um, I think it's great that we're seeing the hardware get faster and faster, um, WebKit get more and more features, bringing it closer to parity with desktop browsers, and uh, it's, it's really exciting to, to work on mobile apps, mobile web apps. Uh, the reason why I ask that question, that kind of sense, is because I know that I'm probably an edge case in this scenario, but uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm on some sort of application uh, on my iPhone or a mobile device, and the links I click, they tend to go to websites in general. So those websites are either designed for or planned for mobile experiences, and you know, the most often cases, they're not. And the times they are, I'm really happy as a user, but as a developer, I just wanted that uh, you know, as more 
and more people on the mobile mobile platforms. I mean, you guys did the HTML5 version of of Basecamp, so that's got to at least say something for mobile web. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I think the I think the experience can be good whether or not you do a specific mobile version. Um, there are a few things you can tweak to just make things more readable. Um, but I'm I'm I use an iPhone and I'm really happy with uh, the way mobile Safari works. So John Gruber recently called out uh, the Basecamp mobile app, saying that if you're going to do a mobile web app, then don't try to mimic native applications. Just build something altogether web. Is that what you guys set out to do? We we uh, we definitely wanted it to feel like a web app, uh, and I think that's important because when you when you choose not to do that. Um, you end up having to replicate native functionality or you end up trying to replicate native functionality with uh, tools that can be slow or primitive. And uh, this is what we've seen in the past with libraries that try to emulate uh, native scrolling behavior, for example. So one thing we did in Basecamp Mobile was we just decided that the content is going to be on the page and the page is going to be what, is what scrolls. Um, and... I think that worked out really nicely for us because the end result was the app felt very fluid. Um, it felt like a web page still, uh, and we missed not being able to have that fixed header at the top or the bottom, but in the end it didn't really matter. So in the latest iOS beta, um, leaks have shown that position fix now works as expected. Yeah. You can you know dock those toolbars at the top or bottom just like you would expect them to behave instead of to the dock them to the viewport rather instead of the to the document. What other gaps do you see that need to be filled before you can really get a true immersive web experience versus what you would have to go to a native app to get? I'm super excited about the overscroll uh overflow scroll changes in iOS. Um one thing that I would like to see is support for um, uploading files. So on iOS, you cannot actually trigger, you know, there's no file system, user-visible file system, so you can't really open a, a file dialog. Um, and so they just disable the uh, file input file elements. Um, but it would be really nice if you could just choose a picture from your photo library, for example. You know, I do quite a bit of mobile development myself, and on iOS, you've got the the screen density differences between the older iPhones and the iPads and then the iPhone 4 with the Retina display. Recently jumped into Android development and was just shocked at you know the you know the matrix of screen yeah. sizes and screen resolutions. It's almost like a Microsoft product, you know, no kidding. matrix. So what does that leave us from a front-end developer perspective of making sense of all that is just something we've got to deal with or we're going to have tools around that to make loading different resolutions easier so what we did in Basecamp mobile was uh, we used double size assets for everything and uh, they just scaled down automatically and uh, that that seemed to work pretty well so we, we went with the iphone for resolution on all images you know which is kind of counterintuitive we have been i think um led down this track of WAP and older mobile technologies where you had to keep it as lean as you could because the, the bandwidth and processor was the problem. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, these are computers in our pockets that, you know, would have taken up rooms 20 years ago, right? <laughs> so um, is there anything that uh, maybe conventional wisdom that you debunked as you 
developed this app? Uh, let me think about that for a minute. Um. Well, let me put that another way. Is there gains that you thought you know, weren't that important that turned out to be big? I mean, what, what are the bottlenecks? Is it number of assets and network calls? Is it size of assets? Um, we, I, I, think, I think it was memory for us, really. Uh, number of DOM elements on the page, and especially when you when you get into things like turning on hardware acceleration for certain elements, um, they they use up more memory, and they take longer to render. But uh, the the best part of all this is it's you know it, it just reinforces the idea that progressive enhancement is alive and well on the mobile web, um, because we 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 built this app again you know all using our iPhones. And uh, would test it routinely against Android and WebOS and BlackBerry devices. And in the end, when it came to time to polish everything up and make sure we had a good experience on all the browsers, uh, it was mostly just a matter of turning certain things off on the older browsers. Was the mobile app a complete 37 Signals team effort or just a couple of you working on this? Yeah, it was, uh, it was me, uh, Josh Peake who no longer works with us, and Jason Zimdars as the designer. No, Jason in Oklahoma City? That's yeah, right. that's right. So how does a project like that, I guess, get on the uh, in the pipeline at 37 Signals? What's your, your workflow? Is it Do you prototype a couple of things and then go to um, Jason and, and DHH and say, hey, look what we have, or is this something that you plan forward out in the future? It can work that way, but uh, the way this particular project worked is that we all knew that we wanted a mobile version of Basecamp, um, and our customers were asking for it. And so it was just a matter of balancing that with all the other things that we can do on all of our other projects with our limited team size. And eventually it became a priority, and uh, we put some time aside to we, – we, we thought that we might be uh, building more than just – you know, more, more mobile apps than just Basecamp. So we uh, took a little bit of time to do an inve- do a tech investigation and uh, just play around and see what we could build without really building anything. Um, and we were happy with how that turned out. And so then we went full in on the Basecamp mobile project. There's a, another buzzword that kind of jumps in the in the playing field these days, coined by I think it was a Paul Harris, wasn't it? When responsible web design. That will be in the show notes. There you go. Um, and Wynn and I, uh, not long ago, we started this new gig together called Pure Charity. And, you know, we kind of took a, uh, you know, the mobile form factor approach first. Uh, so designed for mobile first and then went up to the desktop. And we actually ended up using Adapt.js for it. And it was kind of sweet how it worked out. But um, in general, like yourself, what is the approach that you guys take? Do you take a mobile approach first or in general with your side projects? Do you take a mobile approach first and then design the desktop version? And do you have this... Uh, the same markup. What are what are some of the different trends you go down towards actually designing uh, an interface for it? We are right now desktop first. That may change in the future, um, but we focus on the desktop browser, um, and then we we try to do things to make it work as nicely as possible and as many devices as possible. Um, and then in some cases where we have a lot of people who need to use, for example, Basecamp on the go. Um, need to check in on their to-do lists, their projects via email and stuff like that. We then we 
we make the decision to go through and, and do like a full mobile mobile version. But uh, we have played around with the um, responsive design for an internal application, and we really liked that as well. I think that's a that's a great um, sort of a judo way to to make a mobile app. And being that you guys are the kings of frameworks, do you plan to use an existing framework, say like less? Um, I think what was it called when less? It's not less JS or less uh, like the SAS less kind of thing. It's um, the less web framework. Less CSS. No, no, no. Um, the less framework. Is actually what it's called. Less framework for lessframework.com. Do you actually plan to use a framework that's out there? Do you think, or is this something that you guys would take a look at and say, okay, we can probably do this a little bit better and actually create a, a usable framework to uh, attack responsive web design? Uh, I'm not actually sure. I. Um, I, I haven't personally worked on that. I've just seen the way it, it works on the phone and, and in the browser in this particular application. Um, I'm not familiar with the less framework, but I think just the approach is simple enough. It's you know it's adaptive more or less. So, you know it starts off with some sort of framework where desktop version has twelve columns, mobile version has three, and they're using some sort of media queries or JavaScript to make that adjustment on the fly. I think in I think in general we would probably keep that in house and uh, just use the stuff that CSS gives us, so the uh, viewport queries. So several folks on the Twitter were asking about uh, your various frameworks, and one of them was Cinco. What is Cinco? Cinco is uh, what we what we came up with when we built Basecamp Mobile, and uh, it it exists right now only inside Basecamp Mobile, so it has not been fully extracted yet. And uh, we sort of made the mistake of talking about it before it was ready to be released. <laughs> and so now <laughs> lots of people are, are sort of um, tapping their fingers and, and you know asking, when is it going to be done? Um, I think Think Vitamin fueled that buzz a little yeah. while back. Yeah. So it it right now it doesn't exist in, in a form outside of Basecamp Mobile. Um, it's it's something that I hope to get to this year, um, but it's right now I've got a, a couple other projects that I'm working on wrapping up. So, can you talk about the internals at all? Yeah, it's it's um, it's built on it's built with Stitch, uh, Backbone, CoffeeScript, Underscore, um, Septo, and. Uh, uh, we use JS DOM for testing, so we, uh, by way of Stitch, you can you can actually load the application inside a node process, hook it up to JS DOM, and write your tests that way. And uh, that was really great for us. So Stitch for the uninitiated is a common JS, I guess Stitcher together for the browser. Right. It it basically um, it, it works like node it works like nodes require function. Um, you give it a you give it a set of paths, and it pulls in all the source code in those paths and puts them together in a single JavaScript file. And each of your source files becomes a common JS module. Maybe a nice segue to Sprockets. Right. So it's new in uh, Rails three one. So I guess the Rails three one asset pipeline is based on Sprockets. Is that right? That's correct. So um, one of the questions off of Twitter this afternoon was, uh, how does the Sprockets approach differ from, say, Jamit? 
So Sprockets uh, was originally created um, in, I think, 2008, 2009 maybe. And uh, we needed it internally at 37. Uh, we were starting we – we have all these applications and we needed to share uh, common plugins across them, JavaScript plugins. And there was no really good way to do that. Um, so I came up with Sprockets, which was a, a JavaScript packager that basically let you put code – it gave you a load path. Uh, you could have code live in vendor, for example. So we could have JavaScript plugins uh, in their own separate Git repositories and then have them versioned specifically for each app but in general, I'll share the same code. And we've been using that internally for, um, uh, at, well, ever since then. Um, I think it didn't really catch on. Uh, I probably didn't do a good job of explaining exactly why it's useful. Um, and then uh, Jamit came out a little bit later and took a, a more straightforward approach um, you could enumerate your files, uh, and it also handled CSS as well as JavaScript. Um, and it's a, a really nice app. Or, sorry, a really nice plugin. Um, so the, the new version of Sprockets came from our desire to want to bring this load path idea to Rails assets. And uh, Josh Peake and I have been working on, on it for a while. Um, but uh, it's, it's a rewrite of the original version of Sprockets that uh, extends the load path idea to all types of assets. So JavaScript, CSS, images, uh, Flash movies, MP3 files, whatever, whatever you want to serve. Um, you can keep these files in, for example, a Ruby gem, which you can then keep under version management with Bundler in your application um, and then pull them right into your to your app so I think it's I think um, that's the the biggest advantage of sprockets uh, other things that it does that JAMA does not do um, it will automatically compile CoffeeScript code to JavaScript uh, it also automatically compiles uh, SAS or SCSS or less to CSS um, and I'm not sure if Jamit does anything with images or not, but uh, with, with Sprockets, you can read those in as a uh, data URI. Um, Sprockets lets you add ERB interpolation to source files. So you can pull, a, you can pull any image asset in from anywhere in your load path and uh, get it as a data URI string. So that's pretty handy. So basically, pulls assets out of the public folder, makes them first class citizens of the application. I guess in exactly. development mode, it it enumerates all of them in the head, but in production mode, it concatenates them into one package. So or? by default, it concatenates everything all the time. Um, there is a debug mode which you can use in development if you want uh, everything split out. So for CoffeeScript, uh, what are you depending on to uh, to concatenate those files? The low level. Uh, Coffee compiler to, to stitch those together? We actually, um, uh, 
Josh Peake and I have uh, a project called ExecJS, which lets you bridge uh, JavaScript various JavaScript runtimes to Ruby. And since the CoffeeScript compiler is written in JavaScript, um, we basically just pull in the, the browser version of the CoffeeScript compiler, uh, which lives in the CoffeeScript gem, and then invoke it with execjs. And execjs is cool because it will automatically pick the best runtime that you have installed. And by default, if you're on Windows or OS X, you, you have a JavaScript runtime available, and it'll shell out to that. You can also install Node, and it'll use that. Um, and there's a, a great project called the Ruby Racer, which embeds V8 into Ruby. And it's and Charles Lowell. That's that's correct, and it's an excellent project. Um, and it, it will prefer that if you have it installed. So this CoffeeScript support, um, I guess, was the shot her around the world back in April with uh, Josh's famous commit on Rails three that included CoffeeScript and unfurled that massive comment thread on uh, on github who who got uh dibs on uh i guess checking that in Did you guys discuss it or it's just it was his turn to to make that commit oh yeah that was um it was uh i think a long time coming but josh just finally did it and uh it was it was fun to see the reaction to that it's it's a very polarizing reaction right people because either it, love coffee script or hate it <laughs> it's great because it's just a line in a gem file really you know but it's a default, and I guess it's what um, you know, the defaults that Rails encourages tend to, yeah, to catch they're, on. Yeah, they're blessings. So. Although they always don't always went out in the, uh, the ends. I guess you also um, prototype and <laughs> via jQuery, right? Yep, yep. But opinions change over time, so. And I think that's what makes a great framework that's malleable and can change as, uh, as our aesthetics change. So. Um, what other types of assets can we serve out of the assets folder? You mentioned uh, JavaScript and CSS, of course, also images. But what about something? Uh, could we serve pretty much anything out of this with the tilt gem to be able to take markdown files and have HTML come out the other end? So that's a good question. Um, Sprockets does use tilt internally, um, but it doesn't expose all of the built-in handlers. But you could certainly it's it's extendable, so you could certainly write your own um, engine to uh, to use um, if you wanted to serve markdown files from sprockets. I actually saw an interesting project. I'll try to get the link for you guys. Um, he, so someone was working on this project that that compiled a certain type of source file to JavaScript processing commands which would then in turn render an image. So he was writing processing source as sprocket source files, with, which when you request result in uh, like a ping image being generated. So I thought that was really cool. You know, the, uh, I guess the boundaries are really limitless here. You could do the same thing with CSS sprites, right? Yeah, I, um, we, you know, I, I don't really, there's no good solution for CSS sprites in sprockets yet. Um, you can do data URIs in line, but uh, hopefully somebody will figure that out. You know, I'm using it, uh, I guess I should say we use it, use it uh, with Compass on the edge with, uh, with SAS, not using the, um, the application CSS manifest as much, just 
using Compass's built-in packaging because we're big SAS and Compass fans. But mm-hmm. uh, Compass also has its own spriting built-in with, with Lemonade. And anxious to see how that shakes out. And Yeah, maybe um, we can get that to play together. It would be nice. Absolutely. I know Chris Epstein's been working uh, hard on that. And Definitely. He He's a great Rails guy. Comp. Talking about that. So the the learning curve for, for Sprockets, I guess, for the Rails 3 asset pipeline has been a steep one for me, and I've been in Rails since 2006. Um, is it a lack of documentation? Is it just a totally new way of looking at how we do our assets? Or what seems to be the, I guess, the stumbling block for Rails devs? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on the manual um, this week, and uh, it's, it's been a real challenge for me to explain sprockets. It's, it, it seems like something that should be simple to explain, um, but I, I think the, the difficulty is that it does three main things. Uh, it gives you the load path. Uh, it gives you the processing, so turning CoffeeScript or less files into the, the correct um, compiled output, and it also uh, does dependency management. So it does hook in also to the uh, the Rails image tag helpers as well. It serves those out of assets instead of out of public. Right. So the, right? the way that works is um, Sprockets is actually uh, you, you create a Sprockets environment for your application, and that's actually a Rack app. So it gets mounted at slash assets. And so you can just request any asset in the load path after slash assets, and it's served on the fly. And if that asset has dependencies, those dependencies come in for it. For it, so it implicitly creates bundles. So if we wanted to serve those, I guess statically on a read-only file system such as Heroku, and take those out of public assets instead of dynamically hitting Rails, what are options for setups like that? When you when you go to deploy, um, there's a deploy task that will actually copy everything in your load path over to public. Um, you can also put it behind a caching proxy, and uh, it'll everything should just work. Sprocket sets all the right headers. So, now one of my favorite part about this uh, this conversation is just thinking about the. I, I guess what I bumped into recently was the asset pipeline, and I was calling things from from Compass, and things just weren't work, working out well. And I think it's just probably in that middle ground where maybe it's not all fleshed out. Is in in Rails three one is is this asset pipeline and uh, some of the stuff you're talking about, is it all kind of finalized yet? I, I think the, the um, overall design is finalized, yeah. Um, we need a bunch of people banging on it and filing bug reports. And how do they do that? Because, I mean, we've hit some some bugs. And I know that Chris, uh, we mentioned before, Chris Epstein on Compass is, you know, a big cheerleader for us and the, the leader for us and doing good work on Compass and helping us with, um, you know, a number of SaaS things in general, but also Compass and CSS frameworking of all sorts. And this is a, this is something to win. And I use, and that was a bug that we recently kind of, I don't know if it's a bug or not, but basically in, uh, in, in Compass, you have this variable that they call to the image path mm-hmm. um, that you can set. And I wasn't getting, I wasn't sure where to put stuff, basically, <laughs> you know, static assets like images and whatnot. Well, it's been, uh, I guess, hard finding the right cocktail of edge gems you know, anytime something's you know pre-release finding the right uh, version of SAS and compass and then as well right uh, yeah it's, it's, it's been shaky it's been a shaky road but uh, so when you say people need to file bugs and tickets and help you hit 
in uh, in Bang on Rails three one. Where where can they feed feedback to you guys? The best place is the Rails bug tracker, and uh, if it if it's not really a Rails issue, then um, we can redirect it to the right place. I guess one of the most exciting aspects of the asset pipeline is that now plugins and gems and and uh, bundles of application can hook into the Rails asset pipeline and provide assets without the need to uh, run a rake task and copy those over to your public folder in some sort of generator, right? Yeah, and I think that's going to be huge. Um, we already have been making good use of uh, the Rails PJAX plugin, which does just this. And it's actually written in CoffeeScript, which is cool. I came across this feature with the Formtastic Form Builder plugin uh, in Rails. Prior to Rails 3.1, you had to run a rake task to copy their uh, assets, their baseline assets, their static style sheets into the public folder. But now uh, they can just take into the asset pipeline and serve those. There's no need uh, to do that, which is really cool. But it also begs the question, as more and more code is coming from gems, um, are we losing anything um, to, I guess, obscurity or magic in gain of this uh, convenience? I don't know about that. It, it does seem a little weird to me that we're packaging assets um, or non-Ruby code in gems. But uh, it's, it's the tool that we have right now. So I guess the takeaway is to always look at the gem source. Um, yeah. yeah I, th- I think in the early days of, of rails, when, uh, before we even moved to, to gems for our plugin management, we, you know, everything was script plugin, uh, install right. and it was pulling from subversion, right. <laughs> uh, and unfurling these things down in the plugin folder. And it was right there in the project and, and still people, you know, didn't open those, those folders and see exactly what this plugin was doing. You know, they read a readme and said, hey, it does exactly what I want it to do. But even more so when we moved to gem uh, files to our gem packages to, to manage these these dependencies, you know, it became even more of a black hole. And I'm just surprised at how many Ruby devs don't go to the source and, and check it out. Yeah, it, it, it can be. Um, the great thing is that you don't, you know, you don't have to use a gem. Um, it, it's a convenient way to distribute stuff, but you can also just check something out into the vendor directory. Um, Sprockets will automatically look there for uh, it'll look for asset subdirectories inside that. Um, there's also a vendor assets JavaScripts directory too, which is where you know it's a great place to put, for example, all your jQuery plugins. So what's the benefit? Last week's episode, or I guess last episode has been a couple of weeks ago. Um, we talked to the guys over at uh, CDNJS and talked about more and more JavaScript frameworks moving up to the content delivery networks. And so it's kind of a um, a lateral move than bundling all your frameworks together. Have you noticed any gains in serving you know, jQuery off of a CDN and just bundling your application assets? versus bundling that version of jQuery in with your assets? There's some contention about this, but I feel like bundling everything in a single asset is the way to go. Um, and, you know, you can also break that down a level further by uh, grouping all your framework libraries together in a, in one bundle and then all your application code in, in another bundle, which Sprockets lets you do pretty easily since everything is a bundle. Um, but I... I don't really know if CDNs are, are worth it for most people. Um, maybe if you have a, a, a public site but where you, you serve a lot of traffic on the front page, but um, 
for most applications, the the bundle is requested once and then it's cached. So, so uh, if you're not a regular on the show, you uh, or listener of the show, you probably don't know that we have a running uh, drinking game with the uh, words Hamel and Sass on the show. And I think we've got Sass so far. Haven't mentioned Hamel yet. Maybe we'll will later in the episode. Cheers, cheers. Um, I wanted to know how important was Sass's embracing of this new SCSS syntax, how critical of a factor was that in getting SAS support in Rails 3.1? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Um, I can say that the big thing that excites me about SAS is support for nesting. And I know a lot of people use the advanced features, um, like mixins and, and things like that, but uh, just just having nesting is such a huge improvement. And the fact that it's backwards compatible with your existing CSS uh, really helps, I think. So it's going to be good to just spread this to as many people as possible. I mean, you know, we use gems to kind of package up our patterns and share them across applications with Compass. And you mentioned you know, doing that with now your JavaScript assets and even your CSS assets and have those being served out of, of gems. And I think what excites me about that is, you know, um, we've kind of had this dual world uh, set up between kind of client-side code and server-side code. And every time that there's an advancement on the client-side, then you know, those static assets have to kind of migrate the, their way over and be versioned separately than the, the server-side code. But now, you know, if I want to take Adapt.js and turn it into you know, an asset pipeline um, component, right? Now I can say, well, I'm just using Adapt.js version XYZ, and I know I'm getting the static asset that came from that without having to really worry about going back to the source, copying the static asset over and always maintaining that versioning myself. Yeah, I think it's going to be a big win. I'm excited to see uh, what kind of stuff people are going to package up to. So I think there's some interesting opportunities for for Rails plugins that that also provide um, maybe just a small JavaScript asset, a small CSS file, or a, a couple of images. I'm going to circle back to Pal just for a moment and about a couple of um, aspects of Pal that I found intriguing. So I think one of the things that struck me when I came across the the uh, project, other than the uh, the great domain name Pal.cx, was how well designed the website was. So give a shout out to the artist behind this design. Jamie DeHanson at 37signals did an amazing job of uh, explaining Pal visually. Um, we... I, I I had been talking to him for a while about, you know, I would I'd like to do a website, but I'm not sure how to uh, make it interesting. And he had the great idea of making it uh, making it about superheroes. So he did some really great drawings and uh, then made the website sort of look look like a, a newsprint piece of paper. Were you um, surprised by how quickly the the adoption rate took off for Pal. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it it felt good. It felt like we really struck a chord with people. So I noticed the annotated source code. This steam, seems to be a um, a trend. I guess you used uh, Daco for this. We used Daco, which is a, a wonderful tool. So it strikes me as just the right level of documentation for source. Absolutely, yeah. And it's I think. The big one for Daco is that you can, um, in in languages that are maybe a little bit twisted up, like, are not languages but environments, like Node, where everything is asynchronous, 
um, you can very clearly explain your intent alongside the code. And um, I found it interesting. I, I didn't start out – Pal started out without any documentation. Um, and then I went through and added the, the doco stuff later. And I thought it was fascinating the way that it actually changed the code. Um, as I would go through and document things, I would run into cases where they're too hard to explain. Something was too hard to explain or, or looked too awkward. And uh, so I'd, I'd refactor it to be more linear, more narrative, and it matched up with the, the documentation and in the end seemed so much nicer. And I think that's that's half of the, the benefit of DACO. And the other half is that it makes it so much easier for anyone to come into the project and understand what's going on and contribute to change. You know, that's so right. I do a lot of titanium development uh, in CoffeeScript. And when folks are coming to the project, I, I feel like there's certain aspects of the project that I want to document, but it, you know, I want to make it part of the source code. But a lot of times the... Um, the Javadoc format of those other formats are just so verbose and using, you know, at tags and at params and, you know, just especially a, a, a dynamic language like JavaScript or Ruby just, it just feels weird putting a lot of, you know, structure to your documentation. So sometimes more structure to your docs than you do your, um, your actual code. What makes this such a great project is it just reads it out of the comments, puts a, puts it over on the left-hand side, uh, in the left margin, and then you see the code on the right. But the other th cool thing is it uses Markdown. So you can use Markdown inside of your comments, and you get a nice formatted set of docs. So this is actually the first time I'm hearing of this, though. So where where did Docker come from? Or do I not spend enough time in source code and reading comments? It's a Jeremy Ashkenaz joint. Uh, it's inspired by Rocco or Shaco, or is it the other way around? Uh, no, Docker came first, and then the others followed. So Rocco is the Ruby version, and Shaco is the... Shaco is for shell scripts, I believe. Gotcha. Yeah. And so this is exclusive to Ruby, or is this just... So Rocco is for Ruby. I believe Docco is for JavaScript and CoffeeScript only, right? Or is it just you get coffee, JavaScript you get CoffeeScript for free because it comes with JavaScript, right? Right. It's written in CoffeeScript. Um, I, I've only used it with CoffeeScript. I believe it works with JavaScript as well. It's just such a beautifully simple idea. I think the, the implementation is under 100 lines of code, too. So what's up for PAL? Anything on the roadmap that bugs you'd like to squash or features you'd like to add? Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it right now. Um, one thing I would like to do uh, when I have the time or if anyone is motivated, um, I'd really like to see it running other languages. Um, the Rack protocol is so similar to uh, Python's Whiskey um, and uh, Perl's PSGI that it seems like a no-brainer to support those languages as well. Um, Rupak G, fan of the show, uh, asked me on Twitter today, why no support for PHP? He wants to put PHP <laughs> in PAL. No, actually, you, you, uh, you, can install, you can install the Rack Legacy gem. <laughs> I love the name of that gem. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty opinionated. <laughs> but it actually will uh, shell out to the PHP CGI binary to run PHP files and then serve them up as rack responses. So you can use that if you want to access PHP through through uh, PAL. 
So that, that's your dream, Adam. You can get your WordPress and your Rails app. There you go. <laughs> I, I like playing with WordPress too. You know, it's you can't. It's open source, right? It's good stuff. That's true. We can't knock those, but it's, it's a good one. You know, we actually have one more question. Actually, this is something that's come up to me quite a bit too, which is um, uh, Lucky Dev at Lucky Dev says, uh, "Will JavaScript become the mainstream server-side language like Ruby on Rails?" I mean, we're going on a trend where Node.js is used for more often. There's a lot more happening in the JS world since it's on all platforms, basically. What do you think? Uh, there's no question it's going to become um, more and more popular. Um, I I don't have a crystal ball, though. But, uh, <laughs> well, you did my prototype, so. <laughs> I, uh, I, I certainly enjoy um, writing things, writing server-side things in Node. Um, and I think the, the, the dream is, is to have an end-to-end JavaScript application, right? Like you have your, your front-end in JavaScript and your back-end in JavaScript, and you're sharing models between them. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get there, but um, it's, it's, as with all things in the web world, it's a slow march, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, I guess Node, if it did anything, was call home the JavaScript diaspora from around the world, <laughs> right? All of these JavaScript coders were uh, kind of embedded in the other server frameworks, and now they have rallied around this, this server framework. But as someone who writes JavaScript and JavaScript well and CoffeeScript and evidently well and Ruby extremely well, if you were sitting down and you could pick any language to write a particular project, which one would you choose on syntax alone? It, it really it depends, on, it depends on the project. But, um, gosh, there are a lot of things that I prefer now about CoffeeScript than, than Ruby. Comprehensions? <laughs> not, not so much comprehensions. Um, I, actually, I actually like the significant white space. I like not having to write end. Um, I like that every line of code is significant. And uh, I just like the simplicity of the language. I'm kind of the same way. If you write something, you want it to mean something, right? Yeah. A curly brace or a semicolon, it's the same thing with SCSS and SAS. And I think that's probably where Wynn and I probably, I mean, Wynn writes CoffeeScript though, and I don't. But you know, it's kind of where I can meet with you on there and say that I agree that writing code that, that doesn't actually do something sucks. <laughs> I feel the same way. I love the terseness, and I, don't get me wrong, it's one of my favorite features, but I mean, CoffeeScript adds a lot to JavaScript. JavaScript that It's not hard stuff, it just removes a lot of tedium, and one of those things is the existential operator, right? Being able to, to put a chain of dot notation, you know, uh, method calls or uh, property calls with a question mark in front of the dot and know that in a safe way you're going to go down five levels deep is just awesome. The existential operator is beautiful, and it's definitely one of those things that I wish I had in Ruby. Still trying to figure out why I love white space so much, and I still don't sling Python. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, thing, the thing that bothers me about Python is that the, it, it has seemingly arbitrary restrictions on uh, what you can do, independent of white space. So, like, you, you can't have more than one uh, expression inside a, a closure, I believe. That, that may not be accurate anymore, but I know at one time that was the case. And CoffeeScript has no such restrictions. So I, you, can, you, can, you can break out of the uh, white space model if you need to using semicolons. 
Um, there's also something really handy called the Venn keyword, which lets you join white space, two whitespace-sensitive lines on a single line. Uh, it basically is the exact – it parses the same way as a new line plus an indent. So anytime, anytime you write a new line plus an indent, you can also just write then. So it's, it's really that flexibility, I think, that's powerful about CoffeeScript. Yeah, I was asking earlier about JavaScript and CoffeeScript, but uh, is there anywhere that somebody can learn JavaScript and CoffeeScript kind of in parallel? Is there any good recipe for learning those two in, in parallel? Just kind of mm. being sure of what JavaScript does obviously is a good thing as a, as a programmer, but at the same time, you don't want to just learn JavaScript blindly and not know where it maps to CoffeeScript or vice yeah, versa. That's that's prob that's hard for me to answer. Um, I, I don't know. Trevor Burnham's CoffeeScript book from the Pragmatic Programmers is excellent. Um, it's not really – it assumes you know JavaScript, but uh, it also takes you through using using the language on the server side and in the browser. So I think it gives you a good overview of everything you can do with it. It's a great read. I highly yeah. recommend that book. So as a, as a company, obviously, I think – Everyone would be uh, safe to say that 37 Signals wasn't exactly founded on open source, but it's certainly a a uh, a big piece of the company and the culture. Um, why do you think, beyond, I guess the obvious answer, which is what Rails has done for the company, why, why do you think open source is so important to the company? I, I think that's exactly it. Um, we 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 can put out code that's that uh, is useful to us that raises the bar and get people using it, and we get our bug fixes for free and our R&D. Um, I, I, it's just a, a powerful thing to do. Um, I, I think that should be the primary motivator for anyone who wants to get into open source too. Well, this is the part of the show that uh, we normally ask a couple of closing questions, and since uh, you admit that you haven't caught an episode, we'll catch you blind here. So what is on your open source radar if you have a Saturday afternoon and you're just hacking for the pure joy of it, although it sounds like you do a lot of that at your day job. What, uh, what's got you excited that you just can't wait to play with? Oh man, I'm going to sound like an idiot if I, if I answer this honestly, because I have pretty much just been focused on my own stuff. <laughs> and that's perfectly fine. A lot of folks have said that. Yeah. Um, which of your projects are you looking to um, show the most love? Uh, I definitely want to get sprockets. Uh, I want to get sprockets out um, the two zero final release, uh, and then I would like to um, give Pal a little bit of love, and uh, then hopefully start on Cinco. If you had to, uh, I guess, look back at your how old are you? By the way, just curious. I'm 27. 27. Okay, so you're almost winning as age. I'm 32. When you're what? 41. <coughs> Five. <laughs> um, if you had to look back on your history of being a programmer or working at 37 Signals, like who do you look to as a as a hero in your world? Who do you look up to? Who do you aspire to be uh, more like? Or he, who would you even like to pair a program with? <laughs> um. So I, I David Heinemeier Hansen was extremely influential in. Um, getting me 
interested in, in actually contributing to open source projects. Um, so I, I have him to thank for that, for, for that uh, in the early days of Rails. Um, I've done a lot of work with Josh Peak, who is an amazing programmer, and uh, I, I, th- I feel like we think the same way about a lot of um, about a lot of problems. Um, he's been very fun to work with, uh, and Jeremy Ashkenaz is um, n- who I consider to be the the model open source programmer. Um, <laughs> he's 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 been very influential uh for me lately um if you follow any of his projects and you read the bug tracker you can see how clearly and concisely and definitively he makes decisions and it's something you don't always see in the open source world um but it's it's very refreshing and i hope to one day uh manage my projects as well as he does. So DHH, who was the second one? Josh Peak. Josh Peak. So the two of your heroes are fellow coworkers. That's correct. I don't work with Josh anymore, but um yeah, we we worked together for a time. That's got to be kind of fun to I mean, it's not the dream though to to work with whom or have worked with whom uh you look up to and and I mean that's the whole point anyways is success breeds success. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, Jeremy. I'm convinced that he's a Cylon. (laughs) He's always around in the IRC channels, day or night, answering questions and turning out you know more code than the rest of us. And you know, you would just uh, assume, pardon me, you just assume that he's going to be holed up in a cave somewhere to turn out this much software, much less you know open source software. But you know, he's very approachable, and you ask him a question in IRC, and he's instantaneous. I feel like he may be operating at a higher plane of existence. <laughs> That's true. Well, thanks, Sam, so much. A uh, little technical hiccups. Hopefully they'll come through editing okay. But uh, so glad you joined us to talk about PAL and Prototype and Sprockets and Rails 3.1 and the whole lineup. Well, thank you guys so much for having me.